Welcome to Prima's podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I manage the education and training programs at the Public Risk Management Association. Today, Nigel Wilson will discuss infrastructure risk management. Nigel is a director of insurance services within the fixed asset management and insurance solutions practice. He is experienced in developing the cost approach for insurance purposes in all industrial, commercial, and institutional occupancies, as well as cost trend development and maintenance. Nigel has been a qualified instructor of the American Society of Appraisers Machinery and Equipment Valuation courses since 1990. Nigel joined Duff and Phelps, formerly American Appraisal, in 2000 and held various positions within the industrial valuation practice in the Milwaukee and Toronto offices. He has been in his current position since 2005. Prior to joining Duff and Phelps, he spent 21 years at FM Global, where he served as a manager of appraisal standards. Nigel earned his Bachelor of Science in Metallurgy from the University of Aston, Birmingham, England. We will also be joined by Danica Williams, a member of Prima's education and training team. Danica will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the show. Nigel, what are some of the challenges faced by public sector risk managers in managing their property portfolio's risk data? Well, Danica, you know, I feel that public and private sector risk managers follow very, very similar challenges. Um, You know, they have to develop and maintain their property portfolio database so that it accurately reflects the risk profile. Um, This has been in response, I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, that the underwriting side of the the equation has increased their requirements um, so they can more finely tune their, their quoted rates. They need to uh, their goal really is to make a profit on underwriting alone, really without going to rely on the um, investment income side that uh, traditionally insurance companies can also look to uh, add to their profit. They the risk managers then once they've uh, got their property portfolio data in good shape. They need to track the actual changes in the portfolio. Um, they might have missing assets or ghost assets when property pieces of the properties are retired. Um, and then, you know, each year costs change. We all see that in the consumer price index. We all pay more for every year for uh, things that we buy. Uh, if you're going to construct a building one year, it's going to change in cost when you come around to construct the same building the next year. It might go up, but typically um, it will go up. Runs Occasionally it goes down, but not so often. So these are all challenges. It's, it's uh, a great challenge if you're just starting from uh, as a new risk manager with a new property portfolio. But I think over the years, when the risk manager can fine-tune their portfolios, and um, get a consistent methodology for their, for their data development. You mentioned missing buildings or ones that are no longer there. How does that happen? Are there typical examples? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you know, some risk managers, uh, maybe for a small town or city, might only be tracking 20, 30, 40, or 50 buildings. But then risk managers for a major city or countywide or statewide entities could be tracking thousands of buildings, um, and buildings are acquired by new additions. Uh, you know, brand new build. They can 
renovate buildings. They can change the occupancies of buildings. Public entities often acquire buildings by donation or by foreclosure. And uh, some buildings may be uh, disposed of. They may be raised or sold. So the, a large property portfolio can be very dynamic. And it's a challenge to track and have the individual reporting entities report accurately up to the Office of Risk Manager the changes from one year to the next. We see sometimes when we're looking at a large portfolio, and we, I'm, here I'm really referencing 1,000, 2,000 plus properties. If we go out and look at that portfolio and uh, verify the accuracy, we can record changes of between 10 and 20% of purely the property listing themselves. Um, and some of those can be small buildings, park buildings, lift stations in water systems, uh, but some can be large and it can be significant. So it's, it's bottom line, it's a challenge for the risk manager to track all those additions and retirements. And what are some steps that a risk manager may take to review their property portfolio? And are there any published reference sources to assist them? Yeah, one thing that I always recommend to a risk manager or anybody really who's working in risk management is to periodically just step back and take a fresh look at their statement of insurable values. Um, it's a simple exercise. You know, what I would advise is uh, on the uh, spreadsheet, just run a couple of new columns and do a couple of very simple calculations where you determine the cost per square foot for the buildings and for the contents, and uh, calculating the current um, insurable value divided by the square footage. And these are typically data fields which are on most uh, statement of values. One thing that I really stress when you're looking at a statement of values in this way is to ensure that the square footage is accurate. That the challenge can be here that, and we see it quite often, is that there's an inaccurate calculation of a square footage. It can be looked at at a net square footage rather than gross, or perhaps um, the square footage just reflects a single story of a multiple story building. We've seen all of these happen. But once you've calculated the cost per square foot, using a gross area, uh, you can compare like properties with like properties. Compare a school building to a school building, whether it be grade school or middle or high or vocational tech or um, a fire station or a police station to other like properties. What you're looking for when you're going through an exercise like this is are the outliers, those ones that are, that are high or low compared to their peers. Um, if the police stations are coming in at $200 a square foot and you find one at 500 or one at 50, you need to ask questions to why it's calculated out to that value. That way you can spend your time wisely looking at the outliers and determining if it's just poor data in or whether there is actually a problem on the, the valuation or the, the square footage area of the building. All buildings are not the same, so they will vary. They can vary, they can go high or low depending on whether they're ornate construction, historic construction will drive it high or low. Um, you can have very poor quality, uh, very basic building, low quality materials, so those will, will be lower. Uh, you, you asked about published resources. There's a number of um, good publications out there that 
track the current cost of construction for cost per square foot guidelines. Uh, Marshall and Swift, I think, is a very well known in the insurance industry. Um, another publication, more well known in the for the general contracting industry, but they also publish uh, cost per square foot guidelines for typical buildings. Are a company called RS Means. And then one source that I use, which I like a lot, is a company called Design Cost Data, and they track the cost of construction of, of actual buildings. So you can look at buildings uh, that have been built in other parts of the country, in your part of the country, such as school buildings or town halls, and they analyze the actual cost of construction of that building. So it's you're comparing to a real building rather than a model building. So I think these are, those are some of the things that I would do. Um, and sometimes I advise, rather than the risk manager do this, have uh, somebody a little lower down the, the totem pole or food chain who brings a fresh perspective when they're reviewing a statement of values. We have seen real estate values crash and now start to increase. Do public entity properties follow the same trend? It's, it's a question I get often. Um, and, and in essence, the answer is no, simply is no. Um, real estate prices, as we've all suffered, shall we say, over the last 15 years uh, when we had the, the crash in 2008, 2009, um, they're affected by market values. And real estate price is what I would term a fair market value. It's affected by the physical, functional, and economic obsolescence and depreciation factors out there in the marketplace. Whereas a risk manager's concern is for an insurable value, which is typically a replacement cost new or reproduction cost new. That's based on the current cost of materials and labor and equipment to actually construct that building today. Critically, it doesn't include the land value. We're not insuring the land. So the replacement cost new just purely reflects the, the building material and labor as of the current cost. And that tends to track a lot more steady. It's a lot less dynamic, shall we say, than the, the market values. Interestingly, if you look over the last 15 years, it's about um, the turn of the century, since 2000, average construction costs in the US have gone up about 70%. Um, that equates to about 3.5% a year. If you look back further and go back to maybe 1980, you can see a 320% increase. Now that compares to a consumer price index that's only rising at 1.5% to 2% a year. And so you know, we see over the last 15 years the construction costs have risen at almost double the consumer price index. What I, to, for risk managers, when they're trying to track the cost change of construction for their buildings, I always recommend sourcing a cost index for the regional or closest major city to where they are. Um, construction costs vary throughout the country, and um, there are indices out there published by uh, Marshall and Swift is a, is a great source. FM Global is another source that track either regionally or by, by major city. And there are even trends that track by type of construction. So I would certainly recommend trend, tracking the cost change in that way. Um, another thing I always 
tend to uh, advise a risk manager is that trends are based on average buildings, um, average labor cost and material costs. And I would recommend really using a trend no longer than seven or eight years. The accuracy tends to diminish after that period of time. And at that point in time, it's better to reestablish the replacement cost and start sort of afresh. Some buildings increase at greater rates than, than cost trends. A good example, uh, schools or hospital buildings over the last 15 years, they've increased greater than 100% uh, versus 70% for average buildings. There are factors such as um, a more elaborate design or green building features that come into play and increase security requirements in such buildings that tend to drive their, their cost increases at a greater rate than the average. So there's a, there's a number of moving parts there for the for a risk manager to, uh, to take, but you know, in short, you're looking for a replacement cost versus a fair market value, and um, use a trend that's from the closest possible city or region where you are, and then be aware that trends are just averages and shouldn't be used beyond probably seven or eight years. I think it's really what I'd advise in that area. We hope you found the information you've heard so far useful. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2016 annual conference, June 5th through 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. Here are some words from Prima member Eddie Beecher regarding why he values Prima's annual conference. The networking opportunities that I've gained through meeting so many diverse and skilled professionals, risk management professionals from across our country and internationally is like the most valuable takeaway at a conference. Aside from the fact that there are some amazing educational sessions presented by leaders in our industry, the opportunity that, that I've experienced to meet our public risk managers and associate members of Prima Truly the leaders in our industry, it's invaluable. I mean, it's the infamous, it's priceless. To learn more about the annual conference, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Nigel and Danica. Do the contents or personal property assets follow the same cost changes as buildings? And where do I find guides to the appropriate cost trends? Um, fortunately, they, uh, you know, as I mentioned, construction costs have gone up. Uh, almost double the rate of what I would call consumer price index. Um, the contents have really, they've, they've risen at more in line with the consumer price index if we looked at the same 15-year period since 2000. We, you can use references such as the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics or Marshall Swift, FM Global, and their average contents, personal property trends, very from approximately 25% to 45-50%, so approximately half the rise of construction costs. Um, the piece of advice here is really that I would try and find an appropriate trend for the occupancy of the particular properties. There are different cost trends for schools or office buildings or hospitals or public utilities, uh, water and wastewater treatment. There are, these are, there are lots of sources out there, and um, your, your insurance broker, or I would always be happy to uh, respond to a request for as guidance in that area.
We're currently approaching the hurricane season. Does construction occupancy protection and exposure COPE data really make a difference to the way underwriters view a risk? Um, in, sh in short, it, it certainly does. Um, I think I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation that the underwriters over the last 10 or 15 years really have um, increased their requirements for, for, for data, for risk data. And they're not just values, but the, the COPE data, the data that defines the, the actual structure itself. And COPE data can be looked at in a couple of different ways. Um, primary COPE data really is the basic biographical data of the building. Where is it? Um, how big is it? What's the occupancy of the building? What's the general construction? Then the COPE data is refined into secondary COPE data for windstorm or for earthquake. And this really defines, these data elements define how the building would withstand a quake or a, or a windstorm. Um, what happens is that the data elements are fed into what we uh, what are known as catastrophe modeling programs. They analyze how well the subject would perform in a catastrophe, whether it be windstorm or quake, and the um, anticipated loss um, in a possible category one or category three or five windstorm, the different scenarios. We had, a we had one particular client who felt that the catastrophe modeling program was really not reflecting their properties as well as they as it should be. They didn't have all the COPE data elements. Uh, we, we conducted a study for them and it made a dramatic effect on how their risk was modeled. Their, their predicted losses halved, and so in consequence, it impacted the, the premium and the, um, the catastrophe limits available to them. It, it decreased the premium and increased the limits, so a great outcome for that client. And I would always advise a client, if they're having evaluation done, that they should certainly consider collecting the primary COPE data and, and the appropriate COPE, secondary COPE data at the same time. Um, it's an incremental cost and I think a wise decision once you've collected the data it's going to be used in perpetuity. What are some of the most challenging properties for a risk manager to keep up-to-date values? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I, I would lump that into three categories. Historic properties, um, complex properties, uh, museums, art galleries, transportation hubs. And uh, the third category would be process-type properties. Uh, in this area, I would think about water or wastewater treatment facilities, um, power generation facilities. Um, you know, these are the typical sort of public sector occupancies which I find are challenging. Um, the historic properties, they're, they're ornate construction, they're older construction materials or crafts. Um, they're probably subject to many renovations over the years. And so it's very difficult to track the a cost basis for the property. They have unique features such as towers or spires or clocks. Um, you know, they don't fit into a particular model. And the same for a complex property, uh, um, an elaborate museum, you know, a, a um, landmark type of property. They, they, they don't fit the model. They have to be um, analyzed and spend time 
determining the, the features that add value to that particular building. Again, process models, process plants such as water and wastewater treatment plants, these are plants which are often modified and added to over the years. Uh, as a community grows, their, re their requirements for increased capacity in water and wastewater treatment increases, so you add another stream to a plant. And tracking the cost additions when you're putting another stream and onto a plant is difficult. Um, it's not always 100% of the cost spent is what should be added for the insurance purposes. Uh, and similarly, when you renovate an old building, um, I've seen older buildings where the insurable cost has, has actually been double what it should be because full renovation costs have been added. Whereas you know, in renovating a building, you're actually really just reducing the depreciation or making good some of the building materials that have worn over the years. So historic properties, complex properties, uh, process plants, really those are the challenging occupancies, I think, for the public risk manager. And you mentioned earlier, reviewing the property portfolio data can be a daunting and time-consuming task. How can it be broken down into manageable pieces? Um, and here, I think you, it's great for a risk manager to rely on uh, the consultant's expertise. Initially, I would ask the consultant to, the valuation consultant, to take a look at the current statement of values, review it, um, target the, the high priority sites. Um, and this is something which the consultant and risk manager work together. You know, how do you prioritize a site? Is it because of the value? Is it the, the risk profile? Um, is it the impact on the rates that that particular site might have? Um, and then if you, once you've determined a, a plan of action, what data do you need to, to collect? The valuation data, the COPE data. Which COPE data elements are going to be critical to the possible catastrophe modeling on the property portfolio? Um, this, you can get direction from the underwriters or the, the broker because um, not all cup data elements have equal impact on, on a modeling. A risk manager might, with a large portfolio of properties, might determine that they um, inspect on value maybe 20 or 30 percent each year and conduct it over a three, four or five year period. So, um, and. I would always recommend the, an on-site inspection of properties so they can accurately determine the elements of construction, the size of the property, the COPE data. All these things impact the, the value and the, the COPE data modeling. Finally, can you summarize some of the benefits to a public entity of a well-documented property portfolio? I think this, this probably really goes back to um, you know, the initial question and the, the challenge of marketing the portfolio to underwriters. I think once you've got a, a well-documented portfolio, once you can attest to the fact that the, the values are good, they're recently appraised, the COPE data elements are, are known, that it's going to be a much more marketable uh, entity to, to underwriters. They're going to be able to fine-tune and sharpen their pencil, as it were, and provide the best possible rates. Um, it'll optimize the catastrophe modeling performance. Um, and one thing that there should be no surprises if, there, if you're unfortunate enough to have a loss or suffer a loss, there shouldn't be any surprises. 
Um, nobody likes that. The underwriters are the risk manager. In a large property portfolio, it's quite often critical to spread the uh, premium dollars and equitably allocate the premium dollars back to the individual uh, members or entities within the, the properties. And um, bottom line, if you do have a loss, it's a great start for a preparation of a proof of loss statement. So I think that really summarizes it. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you very much. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Nigel and Danica. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Prima podcasts are now available on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day.